In a situation like this, it's a great temptation for old men to reminisce. But I'm going to resist that temptation because this is such an important moment. This day can change the rest of the days of your life. You say, come on, Oswald, that's a little overdramatic. Yes, it is, but it's also true. I was a sophomore at Taylor University, and it was on a day like this that I surrendered my whole life to God and believed him to make my impure heart one for him. And he did it. Oh, have there been days when I've drifted away from that, even denied it? Oh, yes. But all those days, God was there to revive, to reform, to renew, to reimagine. That day, that day changed every day. And that needs to happen to you. The Christian ministry is the most difficult profession in the world today. A broken society will eat you alive and leave you a burned-out husk unless God has made your heart one for him, has filled you with his spirit, and that will enable you to go through the difficulties with triumph, to go through the pain with joy, to go through the successes with humility. You need a day like this. It was a day like that for Isaiah. A day that changed everything for him because that day he saw the Lord. He saw him in his holiness. He realized this is not a little God who lives under our bed to make our prayers come true. This is the Holy One beyond our wildest imaginings, beyond our wildest dreams, holy in his essence and holy in his character. But he saw something else. He saw that this holy one has given himself to a little, insignificant, unimportant, no-count bunch of people called Israel. And it changed Isaiah's life. 31 times in the Bible, the phrase, holy one of Israel appears. 26 of them are in Isaiah. Who is he? The holy one of Israel. Oh, friends, he must be that for us. He can be no less in our lives than the holy one. And he can be no greater in our lives than for Israel. In these first six chapters of the book, we see that vision that he had. We see here a lofty calling. We heard it there already in the second chapter of the book. Why do we exist? We exist for the blessing of the nations. 
That's why God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. That's why God called Moses from the backside of the desert. That's why God called Amos from picking sycamore figs. That's why God called John from a hermit's retreat. They were to be the vehicle whereby God could display himself to the world. Did you catch those beautiful words? Let's go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord and he will teach us his ways and we can walk in his paths. That's why Israel existed. That's why you and I exist. That the world may know. That the world may know this God who is outside of time and space and yet closer than breathing. What a lofty calling God had given to them. And the mandate and the promise are still ours. He said, I will make you a clean and holy people. I will enable you to be this blessing to the world, to fulfill that lofty calling. Is God's calling on your life today? If it is, don't stoop to be a king or a queen. Now, if you're not called, then for pity's sake, get out of here. Go do something easy like selling aluminum siding. But if that calling is on your life, don't shrink from it. But then look at the context in which these two passages appear. Chapter 2, 1 to 5. Chapter 4, 2 to 6. The mandate and the promise. But on either side of them, chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, and 4, chapter 5, is a shocking condition. We heard it there in the very first two verses. God says, almost pathetically, I have reared children. And what have they done? They've rebelled against me. A donkey knows where the barn is. An ox knows where the manger is. But my people don't. Here's the Living Oswalt version of that. My people are dumber than jackasses. I have given my life to them. I've given life to them. And they have rebelled. What's going on? Ah, the Israel that is versus the Israel that might be. Yes, the other may be but not by ignoring the present, not by ignoring the real condition that exists there. And what is that condition? It is rebellion. Right through the book of Isaiah, from the second verse to the last verse of the book, rebel occurs again and again. And there it is. There it is. As I've grown older, I've become convinced it's very simple. We all want our way. Oh, we'd like to have God's way as long as I can have my way. And if God says, submit, I say, no way, no way. 
You can bless me and you better bless me. But bow to you, submit my will to yours, not a chance, not a chance. Rebellion, hypocritical religion. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we just love the feeling of loving you. It feels so good, and it does. I watched your faces as we sang. You loved worshiping God. But for what? To get what I want? I'll go to chapel, even in November, if you'll give me what I want. I'll have devotions every day for two weeks if you'll give me what I want. Rebellion, hypocritical religion, enamored with image, with influence, with appearance. That's what you see in chapter 2, 6 through 4, 1. They are so captured by bigness by exaltation, by glory. Yes, yes, God, give me that and I'll worship you to the end of the days. And we don't hear the voice of the man who took off the spotless robe and wrapped himself in a towel to wash dirty feet. And so the last picture in chapter 5 is of a vineyard, a vineyard full of bitter grapes. Oh, Isaiah is such a master at the graphic illustration, and this is one of the best. You see, Judah is best for growing grapes. Israel to the north is better for grain and for grazing, but Judah, ha-ha, it's vineyards. And so... As Isaiah's preaching, he says, my beloved had a vineyard, and all those Judeans' ears pricked up. Ah. He cleared the rocks away. My dad was with me when I first took a group to Israel. He was 82 years old, an Ohio farmer. And one day as we were riding in the bus, he was sitting next to the window, and he was just shaking his head. I said, Daddy, what's the matter? He said, who would fight for a rock pile like this? (laughs) Gather the rocks, build a wall, build a watchtower, a whole year for that. And then buy the best grapes, the best vines, plant them so carefully, another year for that. And finally, in the third year, all that work's going to pay off. Oh, look at that cluster of grapes. Just bursting with flavor. (laughs) It's bitter. It's wild. No, no. What shall I do with my vineyard? (laughs) And all those Judeans, they're standing on the back of their chairs by now. Tear it down, burn it up, call in the wild animals. You 
are the vineyard of the Lord. The bitter grapes of injustice, of self-indulgence, of perversion of God's ways. A lofty calling. It's our calling. The world waits. But a shocking condition. A divided heart. Wanting God's way and my own way. What's to be done? Ah, the answer is a thorough cleansing. And that's what Isaiah shares with us in chapter 6. Why is it that Isaiah's call is six chapters into the book? Well, perhaps he had been preaching before he was called. Wouldn't be the first time that happened. But I think the major purpose is that Isaiah wants to say to them and to us, if what happened to the man of unclean lips could happen to the people of unclean lips. Then, as he was given a message for his people, they could be given a message for the world. He presents his own experience as a template for ours. What is it? What is this thorough cleansing? It begins with a vision of human inability. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, this chapter is so dense. It is so condensed. There is not a single word that's unimportant. So why take the time to tell us when this happened? Oh, yes. Uzziah. Yeah, yeah, he's in the palace because of his unfortunate leprosy. But hey, he's the man. He can do it. Yes, Assyria up there to the north is frightening, but hey, as long as we've got good old Uzziah, he'll pull us out of this somehow. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Friends, we've got to come to the end of ourselves. I can't do this. I can't live the life of God. I try. I try so hard. And sometimes I do, but too many times I don't. I can't do this. Praise God. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. A holy king Yes. Oh, there are only two worldviews. I hope you've learned that in seminary. The biblical one and the other one. And the other one says, this world is God. Whether you're an ancient Sumerian or a modern atheist, it's the same thing. This is all there is, baby. There ain't no more. Oh, Oh, 
We've got to come to that moment when we see him in all his wonder. He is not the world. He is not me. He is not nature. He is utterly, utterly beyond the grasp of my fingers or my mind. He is holy. Oh, you see it in the seraphim. His attendants are fire, flames burning, flames covering their faces. How dare we look upon him, covering their feet. Oh, God, don't look at this creation. And yet, serving, serving in every way possible. The holy king. I've always loved the anecdote that is told of Churchill and Roosevelt. During the Second World War, Roosevelt said, Now, Mr. Churchill, you recognize certainly that democracy is the finest form of government there is. Churchill said, Yes, Mr. President, but I hope you remember that heaven is a monarchy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. He is the king. He will be the king. He will never be less than the king. The king who has perfect right to your life and mine, and yet who invites us to come. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. Who is king of your life? of your desires, of your hopes, of your dreams. Absolute monarch, is he? Is he? Or does he exist to make your dreams come true? Does he exist to fulfill your desires? Is he king? He is not a pleasant little gnome nor a senile grandfather. He is the Holy One. And how big is he? I love this. Isaiah comes drifting out of the temple about six inches off the ground, and they say, what happened to you? I saw the Lord. Oh, wow, what did he look like? You should have seen the hem of his garment. It filled the temple. If the hem of his garment is 75 feet tall, how big is he? I saw the Lord. Have you seen the Lord? And then he saw himself. Translations struggle with the Hebrew word because we do not have any single good English word that quite captures it. Alas, for me, I am ruined, I am undone, I am destroyed. I think the best translation is dissolved. He is like a pat of butter in the noonday sun on a hot pavement. There's nothing left of me in the presence of him. I can't exist in his presence. 
Oh, friends, <laughs> this is too far away. I need to get in your faces. <laughs> How easy it is for me to think God is really fortunate to have me on his side. No, no, you bring him nothing. I bring him nothing. In his holy presence, we cannot even exist. But how easy it is for us to romp into the throne room and say, Hi, old buddy, how you doing today? What can I do for you? God, help us. But look what he says. He does not say, alas for me, for I'm finite. He does not say, alas for me, for I'm temporal. He does not say, alas for me, for I'm mortal. He says, alas for me, because I am unclean. Here's the dramatic thing about holiness in the Bible. In the rest of the world, you cannot speak about holy character because the unclean gods are as holy as the clean gods. The evil gods are as holy as the good gods. But this God, the only holy one, And what is it that destroys Isaiah? He is pure. What does that mean? He is one. One. You never turn your back on a God. Gods are like us, only bigger. So, excuse the bad grammar, they're gooder than us, but they're better than us. They'll lie like a rug if it pleases them. Not this God. This God is one. He is pure. And oh, what drivel comes out of these lips. How easy it is to protest. Oh, yes, God owns me. And our lips Give us the lie. I heard an illustration from this pulpit many years ago. Young preacher moved into the parsonage on Saturday night. Didn't have time to really prepare a sermon, so he pulled down a book of Charles Spurgeon's sermons and wrote down the chief points and some of the supporting points. Got up on Sunday morning and said, my first point is, and an old man sitting down here said, sounds like Spurgeon. What are you going to do? He went on. He said, my second point is, that does sound like Spurgeon. (sighs) My third point is, yes, that's Spurgeon, all right. Old man, will you shut up? Ah, that's himself. (laughs) Unclean lips. Unclean lips. He saw human inability, he saw God, he saw himself. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh God, please have mercy on me and help me because I think I can really do a lot of good stuff for you. It's over. There's no point in asking God to do anything. It's over. 
but God does something anyway. <laughs> That's our God. That's our God who comes to us with the initiative of grace. Oh, friends, God's coming to you today. But I have to tell you something. He's not coming with a rose dipped in holy water. He's coming with a burning coal that is so hot that the burning seraph has to use tongs to take it off the altar. That's hot. Now, when I get to heaven, by God's grace, I have a question. And it's going to be, Isaiah, which altar? Which altar? Remember, the whole complex is the temple. Was it the incense altar? Could have been. The holy incense. The prayer rising to God with the smoke. Could have been. But my heart tells me it was a piece of charred, burning lamb flesh off the high altar out in the court. And did Isaiah say, oh, do it again, it feels so good. (laughs) He cried. He cried. Friends, Sin is not dealt with easily. Sin costs a life. It burns. It burns. Yes, it will. Our wills do not die easily. Our way does not simply drift away. It's got to be dealt with radically. And then, then he heard God's voice. Only now. Could he not hear God's voice before? I wonder. But whatever the reason, now he hears God's voice. But it's so fascinating you know, here's God sitting on his throne. <sighs> Whom shall I send? Who would go for us, I wonder? And here's Isaiah down here, jumping up and down, waving his arms, saying, God, God, could you use me? Why don't more of us do that? I have been waiting now for some 45 years to hear this testimony. All I ever wanted to do was preach the gospel. But God said, no, you've got to be an orthodontist. And I said, God, I don't want to be an orthodontist. I don't want to spend my life looking in people's mouths. I want to preach the gospel. And God said, no. (coughs) I haven't heard that testimony. This is the one I've heard. All I ever wanted to do was be an orthodontist. All I ever wanted to do was look in people's mouths. And God said, you got to preach the gospel. And I said, oh, God, I don't want to preach the gospel. I want to look in people's mouths. 
Why not? I think it's because we have not experienced the depths of his grace. He knew himself destroyed. He knew himself in an absolutely hopeless situation. And now he's not only alive, he's one, he's clean. God, could you use me somewhere somehow? And then he received God's commission. In all my years, I've only heard one sermon from Dr. Paul Reese that covered the whole of Isaiah 6. Normally, sermons on Isaiah 6 come to a screeching halt right here. Here am I, Lord, send me to build a megachurch. Here am I, Lord, send me to be the next Billy Graham. Here am I, Lord, send me to win the world. What do you want me to say, God? I want to give you a message that will harden this generation's heart. Being who they are, if you're faithful, Isaiah, your message will harden their hearts. But another generation, if you're faithful, will hear this message and be revived and restored and renewed. Will you do it? And I love Isaiah's response. He does not say, why? He simply says, in the good tradition of the Marines, yes, sir, how long? Till the whole land is burned over and a little green shoot comes out of one of those burned-out stumps. My whole ministry? For a little green shoot? Is that okay, Isaiah? Yes, sir. Yes. A thorough cleansing for a shocking condition in order that his lofty calling may be realized through us. Let's pray.